Welcome to Shanghai Zhan, a raw and lively regular debate about China tech, advertising, creativity, platforms, and the intersection of it all. Join us each session for timely and relevant discussions on all things China marketing. We'll also be joined by an entire spectrum of China experts. You can learn more about Shanghai Zhan at our website, Ali, at zhanstation.com. That's Z-H-A-N station.com. Coming to you directly from the city of Shanghai, I'm Bryce Witwam. And I'm Ali Kazmi. In today's episode, Ali, we have cultural insights expert Julian Labka, founder of Agency Inner Chapter, an agency dedicated to transforming cultural insights, turning them into commercial IP, working with both visionary startups as well as established companies. He's also the co-founder of a speakeasy revolving door where we are sitting right now at this point at the revolving door it's located near shintiandi how, how many times do you get a chance to walk through a coffee shop open up a door walk up a staircase and seat yourself in one of the most comfortable sofas in shanghai you're right this doesn't happen very often and i should also point out that today's episode is sponsored by our friends at campaign asia and we remind everyone that if you like the show please give us a five-star review on your favorite platform apple podcast or spotify they both have places to leave your reviews i feel like a dd driver here <laughs> so julian we love the venue and space and thank you for hosting us never thought we'd ever be pouring ourselves a drink this early on a saturday uh, tell us more about where we are and what's the revolving door about. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on the uh, on the podcast. Uh, we're looking forward to a great conversation this afternoon. Uh, I mean, the story about revolving door is uh, is, is a pretty easy one. I think uh, the minute you've spent a lot of time as a consultant, uh, you're constantly thinking about pretty abstract uh, things like brand culture. At some point, it's actually nice to be able to get into something that's a bit more real, so to speak. Uh, whether it's you know making sure that uh, customers have uh, their drinks come on time, uh, ice is uh, ice is plenty, beers have been uh, have been filled. All of that is is actually a nice break from the from the mental work. So that's uh, uh, that was one of the reasons for opening it up. And revolving door. I mean, Shanghai is the ultimate revolving door, right? You've got uh, people from uh, all over the world that come and come and go. You've got uh, increasingly a lot of uh, People from uh, all over China after graduating, uh, they come in and look for work, and everybody feels a little bit uh, lost. So this is a bit of a, a safe haven and a bit of a counter to uh, to the coming and goings of people in Shanghai. Julian, I'm very interested in your in your line of work in terms of cultural insights and how you. Uh, develop cultural insights for for brands. Could you talk about how you got into it and how you got started, and tell us a little bit about the company? Yeah, of course. I mean, I'm a uh, a reformed political philosophy major. Um, so I've uh, I, I studied uh, everything from uh, Saint Augustine to to Kant and uh, and everything in in between. And uh, my my original thought actually was to to get into the uh, foreign foreign service as a uh, as a proud Canadian. That was one of the things that you know uh, was a very aspirational career. And uh, after I couldn't quite make it into um, uh, pass the exam, uh, the next best thing that uh, that somebody pushed me towards was uh, advertising. Uh, in that, you know, you're also looking at uh, interpersonal relationships. You're trying to understand 
uh, how people relate with uh, with objects, how people relate to one another. And so the more I, I started to think about that, I thought actually let's uh, let's give this uh, let's give this a go. So I kind of uh, entered the world of planning and insights through kind of a curiosity as to how people form their form their thinking, form their their thoughts. And so when we uh, when I first did my uh, my degree in uh, in Asian business and management, uh, I got sent out to to Bangkok where I first started planning. And actually, Bryce just realized that uh, we missed each other literally by two or three months. Exactly, in, uh, in almost like two or three months. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so we could have there you go. We could have met there. Uh, that was what uh, early early two thousand. Having studied actually Mandarin and kind of not really loving the city of Bangkok, there there wasn't that much cultural depth uh, to put it to put it nicely. I decided to to move to to China. And, uh, and that's actually when I first landed here in uh, 2001. So I, I landed first in, uh, in Beijing and as an amazing introduction and a bit of foreshadowing, I guess, the night that I landed, uh, I was made to stay at the Chang'an Hotel, which is off of uh, Jiangguoman. On the night that I landed, jet lagged. Uh, it was like a, back then it was like a 22, 23 hour flight from Montreal land in the afternoon and by about six six o'clock or so you know after i get out of the the shower i see just these masses and masses of people going on jenguam and i'm like oh my god what is happening what have i gotten myself into uh so i go down the uh, into the lobby none of the guards or sort of none of the you know concierge stop me so i head out onto the onto the streets people are screaming chanting and so i kind of join join the crowds and what I realized is on my first day, on my first night in China was the exact same night that the Chinese football team made it into the World Cup. So it was this amazing moment of, of celebration and one of the first big milestones of, of China going into and coming into to the world. So it was, uh, it was a fantastic a welcome to China. That was about 20 years ago. And of course, since then, there have been many, many more milestones. So in other words, that you started with a planning kind of role in an agency, and then you've kind of started off on your own, uh, and you've set up your own company to develop insights. What do you do that's special in the context of, of developing insights for brands? Yeah, so I think that's something that we do get asked uh, a lot about, and I think the, the, the industry itself has, has changed quite a bit. So in, in those first years in, in China, when I was a planner at, at Saatchi's, we would we would spend a lot of time in people's homes um, trying to figure out, you know, their lives, digging out again, those uh, those insights. And I think back then when when media budgets allowed for the 30, 60 seconds, big cinematic TV ad, the, the job of the researcher, uh, of the insights person was really to uncover those uh, emotional territories that you can really translate into uh, into these, these great epic filmic productions. But as things uh, went on, you know, obviously everything now gets bought through Taobao, gets bought through JD, and, and you're really looking at, at creating a, a content, at creating a connection with people much, much more quickly. And so the, the way that insights develop and the way that you actually create those insights, that's changed uh, drastically. And so when we started thinking about how can we actually cater to that, what we wanted to do from an insights development point of view is actually completely reframe how we do that. So how have we done that? We've, we've took a step back and essentially said, okay, 
what we need to do is to actually think about a diversity of thinking. And by diversity, what I, what I mean by that is if you look at the marketing industry, a lot of marketers are based in Shanghai. A lot of marketing departments are actually run by either by Shanghainese or people of, uh, you know, of, of a certain wealth and of a, of a certain education. And with that, there's quite a lot of biases that come. I mean, if there's, uh, you know, last year there was a trend that a lot of people talked about, uh, which was uh, Tanping, right, to lay, uh, to lay flat. Uh, and there was a lot of discussions around, you know, how, oh, Chinese now are, are looking to, you know, to work less, to sort of enjoy their, their lives, get out, of the, uh, get out of the rat race. And that was sort of being discussed within marketing circles as, you know, something that's, you know, this is a, a great big insight. We can sort of build a lot of interesting campaigns around that. Actually, hold, hold on a second. This is coming from people that often have, you know, in the context of Shanghai, maybe have a couple of flats. They're, they're materially very, very well off. They don't need to, they, of, course, of course, they can lay flat. They, they can do that. And, and so, you know, when, when we've got people at Inner Chapter that are coming from, and this was one of our guiding factors in terms of how we recruit, we want to make sure that we've got people that aren't just coming from Fudan, aren't just coming from first tier cities, aren't just coming from marketing circles or insight circles. So really creating this really diverse group of, uh, of people that are all bringing a very, very different uh, perspective on, uh, on the rise of China, on how society is changing. And therefore, you can then actually start to, to question where things are actually uh, going and not just really have this very uh, first tier city or sort of Shanghainese or Beijingese look on, on society. So I think just the way that businesses are, uh, are set up, uh, the way that you know, we do recruitment, that's actually uh, one of the ways that we ensure that the ideas that we come up with are much more uh, are much more varied are much more uh, interesting and could you give us an example of something that would you would see as conventional wisdom I think you just gave one conventional wisdom of an insight or a common belief that stems from a tier one type of city or a, a market that that people generally have that common association but the reality is the majority of Chinese outside of the major cities don't think that way. Can you give a, a good example of something or, or possibly a, a brand or an advertisement that you saw that was completely off the mark? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, there's uh, a, a lot of times when we get briefs around, we need to develop a new, a new brand or we need to refresh a brand. There's always these notions of creativity and you know, rebelliousness or something around going against the grain. I mean, we see that time and time and time again, and people are constantly associating, you know, this notion that you know, people want to be individualistic. People want to showcase who, who they are. Again, that is something that's very, very first tier or very sort of Shanghainese, or not just, not just to pick on the Shanghainese, but just a, a well-off segment of, of society. You know, if you are living in, in some of these lower tier cities, what you're actually trying to do is kind of stay afloat. Uh, and this is this is increasingly true. So we've seen in the past couple of years, really, it's been very difficult to to find work. If you're a, a fresh graduate, this is the first time in a couple of decades that 
really top grads cannot find the right work at the right um, salary. When you go into these some of these bigger cities, paying rent, monthly expenses are so high that for this younger generation of people, being creative is it's just it's such a luxury. That is not what they are thinking about. They need to figure out how can I make ends meet? What's the kind of job that will give me a certain set of security so that I can make it through? And actually what we're what we're seeing is there's been a tremendous influx of people actually going back to finding government jobs, people that are uh, looking towards the SOEs. Now, of course, the cynic, you know, can say, oh, well, if you go work for the government, you've got relationships and that's the you know your roads to riches Uh, i think that's quite a cynical view i think they're they're you know the sort of the uh the view that we're sort of getting from a lot of people is that it does represent a certain um stability as people Mm. try to figure out a job for life yeah Yeah. i mean potentially a job for life that that sense of stability especially in a smaller city is is really important and maybe it's not necessarily tanping but it's more about there is a certain amount of time I want to dedicate to work and then there's a certain amount of time I want to dedicate to my family and to doing other creative pursuits. No, I think you're I think you're right. There is I think those two trends are happening concurrently. Um, mm. So I think the the idea of one thing that's that's sure is the idea of working for an international Fortune 500 company that is something that is no longer very aspirational. That's correct. Part, you know, part of that is, uh, again, salaries have not kept up with um, inflation. inflation, right? So if you're, again, if you're very a smart grad, even sort of middle, you know, middle managers that are working for some of these international companies, mm-hmm. you, you'll just never be able to afford rent uh, in, in the city center and still have to- and oh. still have money to you know, to spend on on other lives, um, little luxuries, right? So people are very much revisiting uh, where time is spent and how money is is spent as well. Correct. It's interesting that you mentioned the knowledge gap because one time I asked my students at NYU, what's the average annual salary for a Chinese family? And they were off by five times. Obviously, they went high. a lot of my students obviously paying NYU tuition, they, they can afford to, to go there. But I just was surprised how little that they knew themselves about, about, about China. And the reality is that there's only a very small percentage of people that make 150, 200,000, 300,000 a year. The average salary in China is 37,000 renminbi per year. No, I'm, absolutely. And actually, it's, it starts to translate even in, in the way that people think about brands and the type of brands that they're that they're attracted to something a couple of things one you've got a generation that's been completely sheltered from any economic downturn right even even during the uh, the financial crisis of 2008 there was a bit of a hiccup but the the government really spent its way out of any any major issues so on the one hand you've got people that don't don't necessarily understand what a recession could be, uh, what hardship is. Whilst on the other hand, and actually the ones that that don't quite uh, that haven't been through a through a hardship, those are the ones that are actually often in uh, in positions of of power and driving marketing, driving some of these. You know, who should we be speaking to? How do we develop the the messaging? Whilst on the other hand, you've got this new generation again that is kind of struggling to figure out. You know, what are we going to be doing next? And actually, we see that quite interestingly in the types of 
brands and the types of messaging that some of this younger generation is into. Mm. Give you a couple of examples. Uh, anything that has a real sense of irony, irreverence, and uh, an escapism actually works really, really well for this younger generation. We were recently doing um, a piece for a uh, for jewelry company. Uh, and one of the things that we were, we were looking to understand is where does imagination and the imaginary take you and why is that important? And people started talking about space and space not in a very nationalistic way. So this was not your, you know, your Cold War, Star Wars kind of uh, good versus evil. We need to win the, the space race. For them, space represents a place where there are no barriers, where they can completely explore and shape and shift their own identity. It's a place of complete freedom and escapism. Same thing for brands like uh, Balenciaga, who, who actually has often quite a dystopic uh, element in their you know, advertising. That's something that people here are increasingly attracted to because it, again, it offers that that sense of escape. It's the same reason why gaming is, you know, it's now the number one pastime. That is entertainment. It is no longer K-pop, C-pop, any sort of something dash pop. It's gaming because again, it's 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 a way to to escape some of the some of the daily realities that you know that are quite uh, that are increasingly difficult. You mentioned that you used to go out a lot into the field to do your insight hunting. How, how do you do it now? Is it, do you still do that or is there a different way to do it? You know what? We've over the last 20 years, we've seen everything from the rise of mobile phone focus groups to, you know, uh, big data science uh, teams being developed by by clients and kind of everything in, in between. And obviously the rise of sort of certain technologies can facilitate research, can, can facilitate certain methodologies, make things more convenient. I mean, God knows during COVID and when you can't really travel to, you know, having the ability to, to gather people around Zoom and have a discussion is, you know, is great. But to be honest, it, it, nothing ever changes the, the richness that you get from going into somebody's home meeting their friends, meeting their parents, seeing the items that they have at home, seeing the items that they have in their fridge, that sort of firsthand understanding is still something that is impossible to to replicate really. So that's still something that we do uh, quite, quite a bit of um, through to actually uh, not just from the people point of view, but you know, whenever we have clients that have uh, a certain, uh, whether a retail experience or something that's more experiential as part of their brand, we will go there and, and work uh, in, uh, inside their, their brand. So we worked at Starbucks for, uh, for, for a couple of days, did, did the same thing with, uh, with Disney, where we're, you know, you're really trying to get uh, more of a, a firsthand sense as to how people are interacting with the space, interacting with, uh, with the product. So that face-to-face -face element is very, very important still, of course. Do you still do, are you still doing house visits? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've, uh, that, that's something that, uh, again, you know, if you ask somebody about, you know, their diets, for example, what are you, what are you eating? And, and if you were to do it in, 
in the course of a, of a focus group, for example, they'd say, oh, yeah, of course I eat very healthy. Uh, you know, it's important to get your, you know, your vegetables and your sort of fruits and all that. But of course, if you go into their house and you open the, you know, the cupboard and the fridge, you'll see loads of potato chips and sort of all sorts of um, nasty things in there, right? Well, and you've been to my home. <laughs> <laughs> and that's perfectly normal, right? Human beings are not, you know, are far from, from perfect and people are, you know, walking contradictions. That's, that's perfectly fine. But, you know, being able to, you know, to poke around in, in people's lives and just kind of, using the context but that's to, where the opportunity <clears throat> is right so then when you find or when you discover that potato a pack of potato chips in someone's refrigerator that's where the insight is that's when you ask the why and that's when they unpack it's the reasoning behind some of our listeners that don't really necessarily understand the connection between an insight this reference to potato chips i think is a great one but trying to attach that back to a health product what what's the course you know you would latch onto that insight and translate it into an opportunity for a brand from a pretty recent project that we were we were doing, we're studying the uh, uh, the brief was essentially what is the future of health in China, which is a pretty uh, broad, uh, very very broad question, right? And uh, as we're speaking with this one particular woman in in Guangzhou, uh, we saw that she had she had about twelve different types of uh, of teas displayed and so we started talking about you know what are you have different occasions where you're where you're drinking this tea and she kind of looked at us funny and she said what do you mean drinking the tea like well it's tea you're you're, you drink it no and she's like no no no, absolutely not what i do is i have gone to my tea seller and i've asked my tea seller what are the different levels of antioxidants and calming agents within these different teas and what she does, she soaks the tea, she puts it between two towels, and after she goes for skincare treatments, so laser treatments, she will apply that wet towel with the tea, tea leaves in it to calm the skin down, right? And so that's something that you would never be able to, to get if you wouldn't have gone to somebody's home and go, okay, we're talking about health, let's talk about tea. And then that person, you know, and you sort of start having a conversation around, you know, what could be a very mundane uh, item. But as the conversation develops, you obviously find that there's uh, a lot of different things. And so through that conversation, we began to understand that, uh, you know, there's a huge, huge market in in China for sort of post-surgery, post-treatment care and recovery. Mm -hmm. And it all started by asking, do you drink your tea? I can totally imagine, you know, not being able to captured that type of insight through social listening or through data science or through taxonomy or through any type of panel-based research because that question would never exist. No, you're absolutely right. The problem with data is, well, it's not that it's a problem with data, it's people misuse data. When a lot of this social listening and sales data became available to clients, people thought, okay, well, this is, this is great. We write an algorithm, let the, let the machines do the work and outcomes and answer. With data, all that you're looking at is past behavior. You're not actually looking at what can happen next. You're not really looking at what are the future possibilities, right? Julian, we are going to try something new this, uh, for this episode, our, our ninth episode. This is a new installment. We're going to try it the first time. It's called or silk market, the Taobao silk market. As we know, Ali, Julian, that Taobao is a place that, yes, it's convenient shopping, but it's also a place that sells the most outrageous shit 
that you could ever possibly uh, imagine. We have selected four items for Julian to choose. He can select one of the items and we will buy the item and we will pass it on as a gift to the next guest next week. So it's a little bit of a, we call it the silk market, but it's really more of a secret Santa idea that we will pass this on to the next guest and then that guest will buy something, pass it on to the next. I think at our last episode, Julian, you will get the final, you'll get the final. <laughs> He'll come back to you eventually. So I should be nice then essentially. How we've done this is purely through the algorithm. And that means that anything that pops up in your Taobao page, we just, we, we choose it. Uh, I went this round. Next week is you, Ali. I went this sure. round and I selected four items. And these are items that literally took me a matter of seconds to find. I never buy this kind of stuff. So I, I don't know how they ever got there. So, and we will post uh, the links for all these items and the pictures on, on the show notes. So if you actually want to purchase these products, you are welcome to do so. The first one are magic illuminating fingernails. Magic illuminating fingernails. That's got a good ET ET feel to it, but uh, let's uh, let's keep on searching. Okay, here's another one. In the magic of COVID and not being able to touch buttons, how about a special pen that you carry on yourself to actually touch elevator buttons and any kind of screen ATM buttons? It's a special pen that allows you to not actually physically touch the screen, preventing all those germs. It's a button pen. It's a button pen. That's correct. Only for that purpose. I think Taobao can be weirder than that, no? All right. Let's, 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 let's give it another go. Let's go. Here's an item, the third item, which is a doormat with a giant rat coming out of the floor. Yeah, I was going to say, that reminds me of a couple of apartments that I used to live in. Um, th this, this could be a contender. This could definitely be a contender. Here's the last one, which is just basically all I can explain to you is that it is a giant squid it's a giant two meter squid pillow uh looks exactly uh, like a squid that you'd find in a restaurant not one that you find in the sea so it's like a grilled squid that is a giant pillow julian which one do you choose for our first shanghai zhan xiu shui shichang i think we gotta go with monstrous alien looking like squid pillow so the squid That's wins the that's the winner. All right. So our next, so for our next guest uh, out there, you will be receiving the squid. And I deeply apologize. <laughs> that's that's correct. Hi, Ali and I hope you enjoy Shanghai Zhan, the only marketing podcast coming to you from China. Now you can help support Shanghai Zhan by becoming a patron, and for just a few dollars a month. You can help support all the great marketing content that you hear on Shanghai John. Simply go to our website, johnstation.com. That's Z-H-A-N station.com and click on the patron link at the bottom of the site. You can also go directly to patron.com slash Shanghai John. That's P-A-T-R-O-E-N dot com slash Shanghai John. Thanks. We appreciate your support. There's a lot of talk in the press, uh, especially given the whole Western versus China foreign brands uh, in China, the Guotao, uh, local brands. The reality is that foreign, foreign brands don't understand China as well as the Chinese brands do. I think that there's a lot of nonsense in that, to be honest. Like a lot of the, you know, the Chinese brands, 
the categories that they do very well in is are often those that don't necessarily necessitate a lot of high technology or a lot of you know high R and D spend. So things like fashion, right? Uh, there, there's been an amazing set of um, streetwear brands that have that have come up all from China. Now, if you think about you know streetwear brands, that is those are brands that will have always emanated from a very very specific hyper localized culture. I mean, just look at Vans or Supreme. They were of a neighborhood. They were of a time and and place. And so, for brands like that, of course. Chinese will buy Chinese brands because it reflects their language, often their you know local dialects. You've seen a a huge rise as well in Shanghainese brands, Xianese brands, Chengdu brands, brands that are you know very much playing up local aesthetics, local dialect. And so for those kinds of uh, brands, of course, there there's there's going to be a tremendous amount of pull for for consumers. It's in categories that you know do necessitate quite a bit of R and D, whether it's you know technology or sort of cars. Uh, you know that's when you know Chinese are are not nationalistic. Pe- people just want to buy the best product out there. You know, full stop. I don't think that we're we're definitely not seeing a a trend where people are saying, you know what. You're a foreign brand. You're probably a bit better than the Chinese one. Let me get the Chinese one. That's you know that's not happening. I think Chinese brands have a tremendous advantage, largely due to to their you know to the fact that from a manufacturing point of view, they can churn things around very very quickly, and that's you know and that's a great advantage that you know that they're uh, that they're leveraging. Do you have any favorite Chinese brands? Um, I I really like Haiti. As a brand, and and the reason I, I really like Haiti is they're absolute masters. What is Haiti for the people that don't know? Right, so Haiti is a, a tea brand, and they've essentially grown from doing bubble teas, tea flavored drinks,、uh, and they've now become this. The best comparison would be they're as big as Starbucks. They're found absolutely everywhere, and now they do everything from sort of tea flavored drinks. Through to sort of fruit flavor sodas、yeah. and sort of coffee flavored drinks and everything in, in between. And they they recently did a collaboration with a with a cocktail bar in、uh, in Guangzhou. This cocktail bar is quite quite famous. And for such a large corporation to do a one week collaboration where they developed for that week drinks only to be sold at one venue is. Amazing, right? So, like, think think of would Starbucks in the context of of the U.S. go to one New York bar and say, you know what, we're just going to work with you for a week, and we will use our menu development kitchen to come up with drinks? No, of course they they wouldn't. They they just they would never do that. But the fact that a Haiti does that, and they've done it with、uh, photography clubs, they've done it with bars, they've done it with single. Restaurants. That to me is amazing because you're catering to a very specific audience. You're catering to people that will also amplify actually your your message, right? So in the context of you know that bar, they've got a very very strong following, and all of those people that you know showed up to buy the Haiti and it was Hope and Sesame is the name of the the bar. Everyone posted that on their on their WeChat, right? So you're getting. Free media. You're tapping into essentially passion communities that are amplifying this message, and and that to me is something that、uh, 
that is amazing to me and uh, so haiti is is definitely a, a great a great brand my my favorite beverage actually is one of their cake flavored <laughs> or actually it's got it's got ground up cake or cookies in it that's quite yummy and definitely not so good for the think belly about, but yeah i think about 700 calories but, in that drink oh totally dude but it's it's delicious it's deli- it's cream it, anyway but what are your thoughts around the way chinese brands are built versus um you know versus how we've been traditionally taught around brand development and brand building so that's a really good question and and i think regardless if you're a chinese brand or a western brand i think increasingly the the dynamics of of building a brand that will last needs to be completely revisited so obviously in the last couple of years KOLs and you know I mean literally every brand has probably contacted or been in touch with Austin Lee. You work with Austin Lee fine but you are in no way in control of what Austin Lee will say about your brand. So it's fine, it's absolutely fine if you want to build high awareness. Great. Use Austin Lee. If you want to build a brand, forget it. Right? So the amount of times that we've had uh, across different categories clients come to us and say so we, we've had a tremendous first year and by year two, nobody's buying us anymore. Why, why is that? And you're like, well, because you've, you haven't built your brand. Nobody actually knows why, what it is that you're selling. Nobody actually knows what your brand stands for, right? But KOLs obviously still have a lot of power. So what do you, what do, you do? What do you do in, this, in these circumstances? Also, what do you do when a place like JD and Taobao directs so much attention of online shoppers. And so one of the things that we're, you know, that we're really keen on, on doing, and actually this is where, uh, when we're talking about how data isn't necessarily the answer, this is actually where we do use our, uh, our data science team to look at nodes of influence, but nodes of influence not in terms of KOL's people, but we actually think about spaces and places as new KOLs. So what I mean by that is, is there a, for example, a museum that attracts a very specific demographic? Is there, for example, the Chinese diaspora, 10 million people living outside of China, I think a quarter million living in uh, in Tokyo, you've got X hundred thousands living in, in London, in some of these, you know, cities where fashion trends, food trends, uh, aesthetics trends are all born, right? So can you actually work with the Chinese association at Cambridge or at NYU that are studying the arts, that are studying marketing, that are studying something, actually use them as a way to seed a brand, a foreign brand in this case, uh, so that they can become, you know, the culture, uh, the culture carriers. You know, as things are getting much, much more fragmented rather than going to to KOL start working with grassroots organizations this is something that actually Vans is uh, is really really good at where you are sort of creating and building the infrastructure for these communities and interest groups to to thrive in so I think the, these are some of the ways that you know from a brand building perspective it does take a little bit more time but actually once it catches on because you're dealing with people that have a common interest and a shared passion they talk 
and they are, they will be very happy to share information in terms of what they're what they're consuming. I think same thing with uh, the North Face, which is a brand we work with quite a bit. Hiking, camping, it is such a new hobby to get into, right? The fact that an outdoors brand, if you can create safe camping spots, if you can say uh, cater to women's needs when they're out in uh, in the wild, whether it's sort of safety or you know specific uh, hygiene uh, hygiene element, and you're building that infrastructure, that's how you will build uh, a brand. Yeah. So I think again for us, it's uh, we you know work with passion communities, uh, try to think about places and spaces as points of influence and kind of build build the brand uh build the brand from there there's a beverages company that i'm working on and a lot of what you said today is it's actually got a brand culture signature all over it and i think it's the culture component that 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 i think a lot of chinese brands are missing and and to your point exactly working with you know creative communities or working with marketing communities or working with domestic brands or identifying people without even calling them influencers just people that are grassroots yeah i think it's just it's finding a, a specific segment that that has a a common purpose a common objective so and it, it doesn't necessarily always have to be because marketing god knows fetishizes uh the cool the art design all of that so it doesn't have to, to always find a place in in those areas it can be something like you know makeup the act of putting on makeup on a day-to-day basis is actually still relatively new. I mean, again, if you get out of Shanghai, the rest of China will look, you know, very, very different. Now, you've got graduates that are finding it very difficult to find work. What if a makeup company would say, any female graduate, we will teach you how to put on makeup that is suitable for uh, for the workplace. We will also help you to, you know, to write CVs and you sort of do a whole activation, but you're very much, you know, looking to to tap into a, a very specific time, place, and sort of cohort that has a, a deeper a deeper need, right? And again, it's about building that infrastructure. Would you think that for brands wanting to come to China, uh, marketing through communities is the right is the right tactic to do? Gone are the days, uh, twenty years ago, where you can buy a CCTV one spot, right? Like, forget it that's going to no company can really afford that anymore. So what you're, you know, what you're really looking to do is either go into a very specific cohort or actually just even pick a city and start, you know, and start from there. So we get a lot of brands that want to showcase their sustainability credentials. I mean, that's always a huge uh, a huge question, right? When when are Chinese consumers going to buy into sustainability? How much money should we spend on marketing this you know this side of it and and of course if you're going to put out a message through again not to pick on austin lee but on on one of these you know through some of these big kols that message is going to get lost because you'll have everyone from your 60 year old ie through to university student that's going to be you know looking at that so what you're much better off doing is saying okay well what are some of the the interesting cohorts that could potentially be interested in this kind of lifestyle. So one of the things that we recently did, uh, we started looking at, uh, we try to triangulate data of people that buy organic food, 
people that are buying uh, a certain set of skincare that has clean beauty at the heart of it, so more sustainable ingredients, organic ingredients. And actually what we found is we traced it down that a lot of these people are actually going to Sanya and are part of the surf community, right? Now that is as specific as you can get. But once we started to, to poke around a little bit more into that, we actually found that, that through that surf community, that they've got links to hundreds of thousands of people spread across uh, affluent pockets of not just first tier cities, but actually second and third mm. tier cities, right? So as an example, if, you've, you've kind of, if you kind of have that, that understanding of China and sort of seeing how some of these values travel and where they travel to, you can literally set up shop in, in and Sanya. around Sanya, yeah. work with that community, and all of a sudden they will do the amplification for you across China, and much cheaper than you know trying to open up a, a big flagship store on Shanghai. on on Huai uh, Hai Road. Have you done any work on menu adaptation? Because KFC is such a successful brand in this market, and one of the reasons why it's held itself back, or one of the reasons why McDonald's hasn't hasn't flourished, um, at least in my book of. Um, memories is is because of how quickly they were to adapt some of the menu items that they had. Yeah, I mean, part of so some of the work that we have have done was actually with um, flavors companies. So people like Jivadan, who who actually develop all of the flavorings for the McDonald's, the Yums, and sort of restaurants, right? And so one of the briefs that we had was, how do we think about spiciness in China? What is actually spiciness? mean and what can you actually ladder it up to is there a certain cohort is there a certain group of people that would think about spiciness a little bit differently right so what we did is we looked at the starting point was looking at different types of spices in in china so you had the the mala the numbing uh, numbing spice you had the the sour spice from uh, from guizhou and we essentially looked at all of these different types of spiciness and what we did, we developed um, different menu items. So we, we essentially developed different types of fried chicken flavorings using different, different spices. And what we did is we tried to connect that with stories that people had from their childhood. So can you tell us about, you know, a numbing, a mala experience? Can you tell me about a, like a more of a savory uh spicy like a more what i guess most people would understand just as a normal spiciness right and what was really interesting is that for some of the stories so for example for the savory spiciness people always had a memory of stress i mean it was absolutely incredible that people would associate a kind of savory spiciness with being overworked having gone through a breakup, just having something crap happen in their life. And then that specific type of spiciness was a great stress relief, right? And so you can, and so through understanding how people relate from childhood, if there's a, an element of nostalgia that you can sort of really tap into, then you can sort of really take some of these menu items to, you know, much more interesting presentations and link them to the right you know type of uh type of protein whereas you know to, to finish off the the spicy story the the sour spicy people would think about it as much more of a context of being on holiday so whether it's 
because some of the um, the type of spices that you find, for example, in Thailand is more of that that type uh, or places like Guizhou where nobody really, you know, works or sort of uh, or studies, but you go there on holiday. So it's amazing how when you start to unlock and create those associations between different flavors, how you can then sort of push things a lot, um, a lot more. I think we're ready to do our A and B test now, Bryce. A stands for um, Ali and B stands for Bryce. Uh, and we usually do this towards the end of the end of the show. It's a, you know, it's a shotgun question. Uh, it's not a question, it's just two words. You have to pick a word. Um, there's no real meaning behind any of the words. Whatever comes top of mind, you just answer and, and that's how we move forward. Um, so I'm, I'm just Let's gonna go, I'm just gonna go straight into it. Ideas or insights? Uh, definitely ideas. Whiskey or bourbon? Ooh, both. Can I can I have both? Doors or gates? Doors. Doors just feel like more uh, mysterious. They kind of get you into to more secret places. That's correct. Uh, steps or stairs? Steps or stairs? Steps. Uh, Beijing or Shanghai? Ah, uh, I knew this was gonna come up. <laughs> I mean. Tell you what, it's got to be Shanghai. I would never want to live in Beijing ever, ever again. There is, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go on a huge rant now, but essentially Beijing, you can't walk anywhere. You're stuck in traffic. Pollution is horrible. And, everybody, and anyone that says that there's great art in Beijing has not been to Shanghai. It's all come down here. It's got to be Shanghai. Shanghai oh, wow. for life. Um, cigars or cigarettes? Cigars, for sure. Cigarettes just have that acrid chemical smoke. Cigars are, I guess, natural. Is, that, guess a good, so. is that a good excuse to why we should all be we, smoking we are, cigars? We are on the second floor of the revolving, revolving door as well. So, um, Hey tea or Starbucks? Ah, I mean, hey tea. Jack and Coke or Jim and Coke? Oof. I saw Jack a couple of pictures of, your, of some of the folks from your office. Denim or leather? I mean, I'm Canadian, right? So the Canadian tuxedo is denim top top to bottom. Gotta go denim. There's an element of Czech about you as well, no? Yeah, there wrong. is. There is. Both of my parents are uh, from the Czech Republic. That's right. And and so, okay, so on number 10, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this right, um, but but I understand that dumplings, meat dumplings, are, are a big po- part of food culture in, in, in the Czech Republic. They are indeed. Knedlik or Djautze? All right, that's actually pretty good pronunciation, Knedlik. Uh, that's right. Uh, I, I have to go with Knedlik. And it is not because of my nationalistic tendencies, which actually I have none of. Knedlikis are actually both savory and sweet. Uh, so there's something where we put prune, uh, prune jams and all sorts of fruit jams in, into them. And they act as a, as a dessert as well. So they're more, they're yummy and they're more versatile than in... Uh, than the Jaltas. Than the Jaltas. You need to you need to meet uh, Bryce's wife. She's done. She's doing some crazy things with uh, with Jaltas as well. Yeah, yeah definitely, <laughs> definitely much tastier than Knedlik. <laughs> anyway, uh, hey uh, Julian, thanks a lot for being on the show today. It's been very insightful and interesting, uh, very fascinating. We really appreciate it. Pleasure, pleasure. The pleasure was all mine. And thank you everyone for joining us on today's episode. Join us next week for another exciting show. And to all our listeners, until then, have a happy new year, Xinian Kwai Le, and have a great day. Oh.